Hello, welcome to Lamniforms Radio, a podcast where I interview musicians and artists about their latest projects. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band Lamniforms. I love learning about an artist's process, their intentions, and who they are as people. Today I am joined by Felix Walworth, who writes and performs music as Told Slant. Told Slant recently released their third album, Point the Flashlight and Walk, uh, their first release in four years. Building off of the sparse arrangements of their first two albums, Walworth has expanded their toolbox as a writer and arranger without sacrificing their bracing personal lyrical style. I was excited to talk to Felix about this record, as well as their previous two, because while I've known them for many years, their touring schedule made it hard to catch up and hear their perspective on their career. Thank you so much for listening. I haven't really been uh, doing a lot of like, this is what I'm all about. Like, this is what I was thinking about when I was writing this record or this is what this song means that kind of stuff was that like a conscious effort or did it just sort of work out that way no yeah it wasn't a conscious effort I think you know like when I'm in the middle of like promoting a new record I'm not particularly like I'm not like oh I really want to do this kind like this specific blog or like this specific kind of coverage like I sort of just let you know the the inquiries roll in and i say either yes i'll do this or like no that sounds horrible mm-hmm. um and usually it's yes i'll do this yeah i feel like your music is fairly self-selecting for the kind of people that would want to interview you to begin with you know you're not going to get hit up necessarily by too many people that don't already sort of know what you're about to some extent i think that's true i think that's that's sort of like that's the double-edged sword of of being a very niche artist (laughs) Mm -hmm. um you get to maintain your comfort and no one new ever hits you up about your music (laughs) (laughs) i was thinking like oh god this is sort of pressure if you know this is one of the first long form interviews about this record because like not to discount my previous guests but you're someone that i think actually has like a concentrated fandom that also is like interested in you as a person mm. the sort of like um like parasocial relationship that some people have with your music so i'm like oh god <laughs> I, I better get this right or the told told slant stands are going to come after me <laughs> no i don't think i don't think there are stands really i mm-hmm. think you know like i i've i don't think there's anyone out there trying to trying to fall on a sword for me so don't worry about it (laughs) that's good i imagine that's probably refreshing for you too like i know that obviously from a business perspective bands like to have extremely dedicated followings but considering like how personal your music is i would imagine it would be very stressful to have people overly invested in your personal life in that way totally yeah. I mean, you know, in my personal life, I'm actually, like, pretty private and solitary. So, like, to, yeah, to, like, 
I, I don't think I would want people to be particularly interested in like what I'm doing on a day to day. And, and luckily, you know, they're not, I've never had any, like, like, like I've spoken to other, like, like people in indie music world who have like posted about where they are and had people like look for them. <laughs> and it's like, I never want that ever. <laughs> like, but also, you know, I feel like a lot of the like decisions I've made about this band and like the way that I tour, like a lot of the a lot of the strategic like industry side decisions that I've made have been intentionally to like I'm not trying to cultivate that kind of relationship or or create any like, like I don't want to be too I don't want to be famous at all. <laughs> like mm-hmm. You know, like, like if, like my, my feeling about music is like, if I can just like do what I'm doing right now forever, that's great. Subsistence based album recording (laughs) feels good. And so when you talk about like those kind of strategic things, are you talking about like what tours you're going on or press stuff or like what sort of things are you trying to avoid doing to keep, you know, your privacy, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, well, certain press things, like certain things that would be like good for like the quote unquote brand of the band that I turn down because I'm just like, it feels invasive tours, you know, with big bands that might make me uncomfortable to travel with or just that I don't care about their music enough to go on a tour with them. You know, I'm, it's important to me to make those decisions about you know, what I need without thinking about, like, how it will, like, be good for the future of the project with some pie-in-the-sky, infinite growth capitalist model in mind for it, I think. I'm trying to think of, like, other... Like, I think, you know, the decision, like... And I don't want it to sound at all... like, Like, I feel like there's a way for this to sound, like, weird and, like, kind of shady about... uh like so I put my record out again with Double Double Whammy and I think a lot of other bands who are putting out, you know, another record might like shop it around and try to you know get on a larger indie label or something like and that kind of thing is just like never that didn't matter to me. Like I like Double Double Whammy. I like trust the people who work there and like and they do a good job. So it's not an issue. Like I don't want this to sound like I've settled for the small label. Like there are also like positive reasons why I've decided to stick with them. But also, you know, a large part of that decision is like I am not trying to snowball this. Yeah, because I feel like you can kind of when a project does start snowballing that way, it, it sort of is out of your hands what people do with it. And you can sort of lose focus of what makes the project what it is to begin with. And also, therefore, lose, like, why people like it as well. Like, some bands, I do want to see them kind of, if not, like, grow infinitely because that's impossible, at least grow to the point where I feel like their their creativity is, like, expressing itself to its fullest extent. Whereas I think other musicians, and I think yours... You, you your music falls into this uh this category as well it's like you kind of want it to remain connected to its original intentions and i don't think that like signing to a bigger label would necessarily like remove impediments from your original intention at all because you've got a very clear focus about like what interests you in your music and 
you can still find ways to innovate inside of that. Like one of the things I really like about this new record is it's like sonically very different from the first two, but it doesn't not feel like a told slant album, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like, you know, like sort of like what you're saying, like this is like, there may have been a time in the past in the history of like music recording where it made more sense also for bands to like, be like, okay, I, you know, my, early scrappy recorded demos were successful but now I feel like I've reached the limit of what I'm able to do on my own and now I need a lot of money to like go into a studio and like make all bring all these creative ideas to fruition like and I think that's less of a thing now just because of it's so much easier to play around infinitely in like a digital recording setup in your room like the mm-hmm. the limit like the like the cap for creative output there i mean it if you if there even is one is is much higher totally yeah the limitations are more of like what you are able to think of to do with that equipment it's not like artificial limitations it's not like four track recorders or something like that where you literally only have the four tracks like with logic you can have as many or as few tracks as you'd like. Uh, so really the limitations are kind of just whichever ones you like to impose, um, practically speaking. Yeah. So the, yeah, there's never been a moment for me where I've been like, oh, if I only had like this much money, I could make like the album that I wanted to make. Speaking of, of limitations, though, do you like I'm curious because your first two records, especially, I feel like are very uh, intentionally sparse in a lot of ways. Although have, I just listened to all three of them in a row today and like my memory of Stillwater was actually sparser than the experience of actually listening to it. There is more going on in the mix that I remember, but do you kind of set down any sort of limitations or things that you want to avoid doing when you're making your records? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I have to think about that individually for each record. Sure. And with this new one, like freshest on my mind, like I feel like at least this one is characterized by really not having anything like that. Like, I feel like I went into, like, these project files without any, like... I think I understood that there were ways that Told Slant songs typically sounded. Like, there there were things like tempo, like rhythm, like ways that I performed drums, ways that I performed vocal takes... Um, and also like like different sort of guitar styles that I would use. And these all felt like they were rules that were established within mm-hmm. the like told slant cinematic universe. And for this record, I was like, I really don't give a shit about any of those things. And like I've written those songs. And in some cases, I, I was like, I've written those songs as well as I know how right now. So I want to like just experiment with different rhythms like different vocalizations like like in terms of my actual voice but also like the instruments themselves so yeah no it felt much more like it was much more playful in that way a lot less rigid yeah that that's kind of the impression that i got listening to it is it felt um in some ways like the most confident in itself of your records because it did take so many kind of like stylistic jumps, you know, in terms of just like the types of songs that you were writing, like different cadences that I felt like would almost seem like too obvious or something in a previous iteration of the band. And now it's like, oh yeah, you can just write like a 
country song if you want, or you can have more syncopated rhythms and it doesn't distract or it doesn't remove the like indelible told slantness from the sound of it. And that to me speaks to a certain kind of like creative confidence that you have in your work now. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's cool that it registers as confidence because that's, you know, everyone likes that. (laughs) Um, And whereas like the process itself, I think, felt a little bit more like not giving that much of a shit. Sure. And and I think, you know, those things, it's hard to tell. Like maybe I think they look very similar sometimes, confidence and not giving a shit. And I don't mean not giving a shit in the sense of like I'm not invested in what I'm doing, but more as in like I'm not invested or I'm not worried about the consequences of failure here. Right. And like I'm and I'm willing to like take certain leaps and do certain things that like maybe 24 year old me would have been said like that's corny. But instead just like ride like a vibe <laughs> like like for instance you mentioned like a country song like. Like one of the songs on the record is like a five and a half minute, very simple, repetitive, like country ballad kind of song. Moon and Sea is the one I'm yeah. talking about. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the one I had in mind when I said that. And yeah, and I was uh, it's funny that you noticed that, too, because I, when I was writing that, I was like, I was like, this is a normal ass song. Like I'm writing a normal song that a lot of other songwriters could write in a similar way but I was just sitting at my piano and it felt so good and you know and then I, it it felt good enough <laughs> to just play like those chords that I ended up like writing like a minute and a half of like just meandering instrumental stuff at the end that is like all of these things would have been against my impulses before like against my my instincts which were like keep it like short and like you know, cut the fat. This song was like, take your time, do something cheesy, like, and and I think that, you know, what you're saying, like, you know, to me, I had maybe some anxiety about this song being like, you know, too normal, too cheesy. But I think that it comes across on the course of the record as a whole as like, a, like, like you're saying, like a told slant song. It's like, it, it's, it's imbued with my songwriting in a way that it's, it isn't just like a normal song. It's like, it's impossible for it to be. Right. I think so much of that is like your lyrical voice and your actual voice are extremely identifiable. And that allows you to be like way more consistent, even when on this record in particular, you're taking more exploratory musical gestures. I think that's like, that's such, that's such like a rare strength to have as an artist where you've got like these, distinct set of like skills and and techniques that you use in your writing that stay true even if you change the things around that does that make sense it does yeah i'm i'm thinking i'm just thinking of other artists who like you know employ the same tricks but go on i think you were about to say something else oh no no no. i mean i was just thinking like you mentioned that 24 year old you might look askance at some of the stuff that you're doing now. And I was kind of curious because you've got these like pretty protracted breaks between each of your records. Uh, Just thinking like for a normal band that maybe like only six years away from their first record by their third, you're a significantly like longer period away in your life from when the first 
told slant record came out and i was just kind of curious about like what you think of those like the first record and then the second record looking back on it from your perspective now like what's your perspective on like the version of you that was making those albums that's so that's complicated that's a good yeah. question <laughs> so when i was recording stillwater like that was the first record i'd recorded like it was you know really my first time recording in a serious way uh, the, you know i i recorded songs in high school and stuff that were just like you know multi-track garage bands like oftentimes like no headphones so just like layered <laughs> like layering through like like the pinhole mic output and like the song gets louder every time you record a new track because <laughs> you're literally recording the entire track again um so yes i once i learned how to not do that i had you know the the skills that i needed to record this first album and it felt playful and like open and free in this way that i really love about it like i didn't know what i was doing i was using two sm58 mics to record it like probably the worst possible thing you could do like sound wise recorded all in a tiny tiny room not treated at all just like the worst gear a very very elementary knowledge of recording and i was just like you know like swimming in the possibilities of how to make this record sound and like you said there's a lot of stuff going on in it and like mm -hmm. you know when i look back at it i'm like i'm like that's cute like you're a kind of an idiot like you didn't know how to do this you didn't know how to do that but like but i was like loving it it was like it felt great and what's your relationship to like those songs themselves like the recording process aside like how do you feel about the actual material i like a lot of the songs for like they're a lot more blunt they're a lot less like invested in any kind of like poetry or like lyrical craft i think but i like music like that um you know i, I was singing about like exactly what i was feeling about i was just getting into music that i felt was like sort of about shedding away the like excess of songwriting you know like too much metaphor like too much like flowery prosy stuff so i yeah i was like writing it in the style of the things that were that were affecting me the most at the time what were some of those those uh influences at that point um most the most like earth shattering ones for me were attica basement and hello shark who those were both bands that I heard in like 2010 both I think toured through my school in my freshman year of college so I was just you know I was a sponge and I was like hearing these like I was 18 years old and I was hearing these like 20 something year olds like on tour coming in through my college and writing these songs about like sometimes even like ugly in their plain spokenness and I was like that is so amazing like mm -hmm. You don't have to, like, be cryptic. You don't have to be, you don't have to obscure your voice. Like, you can just, like, say what you feel, and that can be beautiful. Like, I think that was a revelation to me, actually. What set you up to find that to be so, like, why do you think you were, like, so mind-blown by that particular approach? Was it just a matter of, like, not having heard people do that, or was do you think, like, it spoke to like some sort of creative problem that you were having with your own music or 
I think part of it may have been that I saw a potential for myself to fit into that. So, like, yes, it definitely spoke to me, like, on a level of, like, I'm hearing something, like, different and something, like, that's outside of my understanding of music. But but part of that differentness was, like, these songs are really scrappy um, and, like, I could make one. Mm-hmm. Like, and I could make, like, like, like this is within my skill set and, like, and within, like, my, like, you know, set of desires to do. And then I set out to do that. Right. So yeah, kind of similar to when you were talking about the record label, it's not like you were settling for writing that way. It's that you were also interested and like inspired to write that way in combination of also knowing that you were able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's not like, like, oh, I suck too much to make like, you know, whatever I was listening to in that year, like High Violet by The National or like Arcade Fires, The Suburbs or you know, I mean, those those were the, the the albums that I was listening to that year. And like, you know, like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and like things <laughs> that are like impossible for me to like uh, that I could emulate in certain ways, I guess. But always felt like it's like you can't do that. Like you need a million dollars. And I finally like just found some like, you know, weird punks coming through and being like, actually, we have no money. And look what we did. <laughs> I was like, mm-hmm. this is great. <laughs> And then, you know, from there, there's the the next step is which was what happens when you started playing those songs live and the translation of kind of that like scrappy recording process into like the actualized quote unquote experience of like playing the music to an audience and rearranging it. This is sort of like a, a strange question because I like it's interesting like having sort of watched all of this from the sidelines to some extent to try and like pick your brain on it. But I feel like the live videos was really where told slant like blew up on Tumblr from my experience at least. And I think the, the version of told slant that people initially kind of like really responded to was the, the live version. How did you try to like, or even did you try to translate that same kind of like scrappiness into the live setting or did you see them as being not too distinctly different from each other? I'm curious about like what your relation was between those two things at that point in your life. Yeah. I mean, that's you're, you're, you're ascribing so much intention to it. Um, and it feels as though like all of these things sort of were just happening. But uh, on the other hand, I mean, I think a bunch of things were happening here. Like one, like, like, like I just want to like address, like you said, like, you know, these this live video was a lot more. It offered something more to people, maybe, than these recordings that I made. And I think that that's really true, mostly because, like, you know, the recordings are so shitty <laughs> that, and like, the live recording is not much shittier, even though it's mm-hmm. like done through like a single camera's microphone in a basement. But it captures like you know the energy of the performance, and. Like, the energy, like, I feel like there's a question there of, like, you know, was the live band's, like, energy something that was, like, cultivated from the recordings or, like, trying something I tried to bring out from the recordings? I think I was, you know, this this was my first experience fronting a band. I was just, like, nervous. I was really drunk. I was just trying to, like, keep it together. And I was always, like, 
you know, I was probably like on the verge of a panic attack a lot of the times when I was playing these mm-hmm. songs, and I think that just like came out in like intensity. And when I when I look at those at some of those old videos, I'm like, wow, I was really like going for it. <laughs> like it's pretty <laughs> like like I don't do that anymore. <laughs> like I right. like I'm I'm a bit more of a collected performer now. I think I was really just like battling my nerves. Yeah, I mean, I was the other thing that I was going to ask about is because I know you've there are some songs that are basically like retired live, even by the time that Going By was coming out. There are some songs of that first record that like I remember seeing you in Chicago and like someone yelling out, I think like Ohio Snowfall, and you were like, no, no, <laughs> <laughs> not going to do that. And so I, I always sort of figured that you transitioning into this more reserved, like solo performances is kind of what I saw a lot of when live shows were still happening. I I figured that was sort of like another way of you kind of controlling the way that people receive your art to some extent. But I totally get that it's also probably, yeah, again, like less, you're not trying to like squeeze the performance out of yourself anymore because you probably are, you know, that's kind of unsustainable (laughs) the way that you were describing it. Yeah, well, I mean, so yeah, in terms of, like responding to different ways in which people understood my music like at at that show that you mentioned where I was like I don't want to play that song that was a decision that I made really just about that particular song because of how this is like a song with like a a heavier riff I I know I'm talking to you Ian and like to call this a heavy riff is probably like one of the worst things that I've ever done. Um, but. <laughs> well, the, the, just to butt in on that, the, the thing that you learn is that it's like it's heavier riffs all the way down. So it's always <laughs> just relative, you know? <laughs> right. Somewhere there is one of the heaviest riffs of all time. And this is much lighter than that. <laughs> but it's the heaviest riff that I have. And, and people responded to it in a way where they were like, yeah, this is like a really heavy riff and I'm going to like really like move around about it and and that doesn't bother me i i like when people are like you know physical at shows like respectfully obviously but i like when people are like willing to like bump into each other and like shove each other around like that's how i grew up going to shows it's fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) it makes you feel connected but the the song when the lyrics are like wielded by like a certain kind of guy and he's also shoving people around, I was just like, this is like, this is not the atmosphere that I want to cultivate. And especially I think at that show, like, I probably felt like there was a risk of like, create like, catering to that guy. Um, And I know I'm being intentionally vague here, but like that, you know, like the song, it's a heartbroken song. And there's a whole genre of music for heartbroken men who are really mad at, like, the subject of the heartbreak. And I don't want to give them what they want. Yes. Yeah. That's the other interesting thing about, like, the early Told Slant era is I feel like you got lumped in with a lot of music that you didn't actually resemble very much at all just because of the sort of personal and what people would ascribe as like confessional nature of the songwriting, which I I find that term really useless and kind of meaningless. But I think you got lumped in with a lot of bands that do cater to that vibe. And that seems like kind of a difficult 
balance because you don't want to turn fans away, but you also don't want to like attract bad vibes. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I made a lot of decisions without realizing what kinds of vibes I was inviting into my life at that time too. like, like the, the label that I released that I, I re-released Stillwater on a label um, that was like primarily an emo label and they ended up stealing a bunch of money from me <laughs> eventually and now they don't exist anymore like well, fuck them then yes know? fuck them indeed <laughs> but you know like like I was like at the time I was just like a label wants to work with me I made this silly album and I can't believe anyone likes it so I was just like yes yes I'll accept engagement in any form and then as time went on I was like maybe I don't actually have to accept engagement in any form like maybe I can write some of the rules or like uh, attempt to negotiate that with people a little more uh, speaking of of writing the rules I, I do kind of want to now move on to the the second album which I think is is at least like on a harmonic and melodic level and like instrumentation wise is very similar to the first album but is like a significantly better produced record which I think the detractors of that record overlook that huge <laughs> jump in quality. But were you at that point already sort of feeling like I need to write told slant songs and this is how those things work? Like, did you feel like you were kind of setting the rules in place for that second record? Yeah, I think that that's my, my, yeah, I have regrets about that record. I'm really, I'm proud of the songwriting, but I'm not, proud of the headspace that I was in when I was putting the whole thing together I think I was you know like like I had this first record come out and I had people I had I went from no one ever caring about any music that I made ever including the dynamic of like immediate community (laughs) like for like uh to like you know having a record that strangers liked and have feeling like there were expectations of me um and also feeling like I didn't want to like lose that you know sense that what I was doing meant something to other people like there was a lot riding on that for me and I feel like through that I I don't I didn't have very much fun <laughs> putting that record together I was anxious about how yeah. it would be received I felt as though like I needed to be myself, but the self had to be actually unnegotiated. It, it couldn't be uh, something that like I don't want to be as harsh as like I made a record that I didn't want to make because that's not the case. Like I wrote the songs and I took joy and pleasure in doing that. But I was also always thinking about the the listener mm-hmm. and I don't want to be thinking about them. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's your record They're They should be the ones thinking about you <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when, when it's playing, you know, I do think lyrically, it's a really terrific piece of work. Thank you. Ian. Like, one of the things I love, I, I mentioned sort of like the, the told slant lyrical voice is like your ability to, you, you say it's not like, prose like but I actually I kind of disagree with you in some respects like you you take these lines that you then repeat like individual lines or or like chunks of phrases that uh could either be like the beginning of a thought or the end of a thought and they sort of hang in this like liminal space between the two 
or you'll repeat with like minor variations in such a way that like all of the words suddenly start to take on new meaning. The, I, I feel like going by is like the the best example of that so far in your work. Just like it, it's like really dense in its sparseness lyrically because mm. uh, every single choice that you make feels like really important and like you can't move them around arbitrarily at all. Sure. And you also have all these like kind of repeating visual motifs and entire sections that like pop up at a few different songs and whatnot. It's a, it seems like a lot of thought was put into the record, at least from where I'm sitting. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like, it, you know, I was like as intensely like devoted to the process of songwriting then as I am now. And that, that's not really the thing that changed. It's more like I was devoted to the songwriting because, well, I was also really attached to the production as well on that record. Like I was like pushing myself, trying to make this thing sound. I was learning a lot during this process. I was trying to make it sound as you know good as I could, <laughs> you know, by myself. I think it was more just like it was like the ambient self-consciousness surrounding that record that makes me feel bad about it like as a work yeah. itself i'm proud of it but i just i wish i could have like been there <laughs> with it that's such a told slant reflection on your own music <laughs> oh my god it is <laughs> <laughs> um, especially for that album <laughs> yeah I, i'm i'm not surprised entirely to hear that you have some like ne- not entirely positive associations with the record because listening to it, it it does also sound like you're like not you know people to describe all of your music as being sad which i i'd like to hear your your take on it uh, as we continue this conversation but that's like the one record where like yeah it sounds like you're sad <laughs> you know on that record it's not just the songs are sad but like the people making this record do not sound like they're in a great mood if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the one of the three that that's true for. Like, with Stillwater, I was like, I'm learning, I'm excited, I'm happy. And for going by, I was like, I'm so... I was sad about a lot of things at during the actual time of recording. Um, a lot of those songs, <laughs> I was like, I was in... I don't know if I've ever told you this just, like, privately, Ian, but I was like... I was recording some of those songs upstate and I was just like living up at my Yaya's house by myself and I was eating like a tiny portion of this bag of mixed nuts every day. Like I was like, I was probably getting like 50 to 100 calories a day. Oh my God. Like only drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes two weeks straight and like recorded half of those songs there. I was just, I was in a bad way. And then when I listened to the songs back after it was all done, I was like, hmm, these are a lot slower than I usually <laughs> like would do them. And then I was like, maybe like something was going on like physiologically there. <laughs> like, Yeah, you had literally less adrenaline in your body to play the songs at the right tempo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my 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 like mental state at the time, I think, informed the sound of the record a lot. That's interesting. Like on, correct me if I'm wrong, but on the new record, there's like a line about like treating yourself badly, you know, and like looking at yourself and like seeing what was acceptable 
to do to yourself. Is that fair? I can't recall the exact lyric offhand, but, and again, maybe I'm just like hearing a chunk and ascribing too much meaning to it, but <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of, ex- of exactly the, the moment that you're talking about. Are you, th- are you thinking of the first track, like uh, meet mm-hmm. you in the city? Like I used to look at my body and say, like, it doesn't matter if you take, if, uh, if they treat you this way like that. Right. I mean, I yeah. sort of combined two of the lines like there. But that is the exact chunk that I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's like, well, I mean, that song, that was one of the last ones that I wrote for this record. And it was written like after a lot of the things that I was totally not processing during the going by recording, like related to like my mental health, related to the music industry, related to like my relationship to art. Those things like kind of came to a head towards the end of of recording this last record. And I, I don't know, it was actually a revelation to me to be like, oh, actually, like, you need to start like taking care of yourself <laughs> in a way. I mean, that's that's vague, but the the album explores that a little bit. And I think this album is I mean, a bit more about like, you know, indulging in selfish decision making. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, there's some decision making. It's interesting you describe it as selfish because I know what you mean, like taking time to like not treat yourself like shit and to not allow other people to treat you badly can feel selfish. But I feel like it's kind of just like the starting point for treating other people well as well is kind of the way I've took it. And yeah, I, that I think like having that as like a line so early on this record really kind of colored the way that I listened to a lot of the rest of uh, Flashlight because it made the record feel like less sad and like to me, you know, almost like it's coming from a place of like, you're no longer like, like going into your own depths just for the sake of it or like not, to, you know what I mean by when, when I say that, like it, it seems like you're doing it from a much more comfortable place of like almost remove from your own pain to some extent yeah yeah i think that that, that's fair a lot of these songs or or rather maybe you know because some of these songs were written when i was like in in the bog the feelings bog but Mm -hmm. the album itself isn't like the process of putting it together wasn't one of like i'm stuck in the feelings bog it was like it was like i'm actively searching for like ways to like get out of all of like the muck that I've been like living in for so long and like weighing the consequences of like different ways of fixing a broken life basically if you don't mind me like getting somewhat personal like what were you working to fix like what what were you processing on this record a lot of it is about like relationships being taken for granted people in your life who you you know that you have to love but there's no more love it's it's about like it's about familial relationships essentially like like where there once was like agency and now there's just like just structure and like you know realizing that you're sort of like in these unnegotiated but heavily bound relationships where there's like all of this like unprocessed stuff <laughs> bad stuff going on um and you know like 
part of the record is like escape fantasies um, where it's just like what if I just said fuck you and I just never talk to you again <laughs> and then there are other you know ways of of processing it that are like what if we actually like commit to our love for each other like what if we like fill you know if 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 these vessels have like emptied out over time like while we weren't looking like there was a crack in the in the glass like you know like what if we like what if we both sit down and we start patching it up actually (laughs) and you're uh, the way that you pair those ideas to me seems like you're kind of saying that that itself is also sort of an escapist fantasy or could be yeah yeah in a way like i feel like like where the album feels more safe is that it feels like it knows that it that it needs to do something mm-hmm. like it feels like it's attached to a plan of action it's like something's got to give like whereas like maybe like a record like going by was just like i don't even know how to do like you know i'm just like i'm sinking essentially yeah yeah that that makes 100% sense to me listening to both of them it's there's kind of like a few different like metaphors i'd just like to kind of like run by you just to get like your why you particularly choose to like not harp enough god terrible double (laughs) pun there um (laughs) like you return to like nature images a ton and going by i think there's a lot of there's a lot of water in particular on that one but on this one it there seems to be this conflict between like the sort of rural images and the urban images hmm. and i think like opening with meet you in the city kind of like grounds you is like yeah like you're a songwriter living in new york it makes sense that you're going to write about your surroundings in that way but then so many of the lyrics on the rest of the record kind of feel like they're not taking place in that same world they're out there somewhere they're like out in the woods or they're in a barn or what have you and that kind of contrast to me evokes a certain kind of like thought bubble coming up from the first song and then that the rest of the record kind of blooms out of it does that ring true to you at all or you know what why do you what do you see as like the uh the meaning or the what interests you about that kind of contrast between like rural images and urban images um, I mean, that's, that's also an interesting question, because um, so much of it is, like, symbolism for me. Mm-hmm. And also, like, like, well, it's, it's, it's kind of hard, honestly, as a songwriter to, to tell you where the symbolism and the act and the lived experience, <laughs> like, w- like, where one ends and the other begins. You know, a lot of these images are like, you know, I've been all over the country. <laughs> I've been, like, I've been, I've traveled like on tours and like you know there's a lot of like there's a lot of like pseudo forest in my mind or like pseudo wilderness on this record like like the highway overpasses and like the access roads and these like sort of like borders between the known and the unknown like Mm -hmm. like what I'm doing now and what I could be doing I think that you know a lot of the nature imagery is you know, it doesn't represent places that I that I have been in, <laughs> um, or that I spend most of my time in, and it is like specifically like a device uh, to talk about like setting out, like leaving, mm-hmm. exploring, like you know, in a certain way, like like sh- like shedding the you know, in a very American way, the you know the the shackles of 
you know, if it were a Western, it would be like of law, <laughs> mm-hmm. sure, <laughs> uh, like you know, of civilization. But for me, it's like of like obligation, of like responsibility to others, um, like a place where I can be responsible only to myself. Do you think that it's also because I know that I've read a fair amount of the interviews for the the previous record, and you talk a lot about like legibility, and I could see that being its own burden or like illegibility and legibility can both be fraught with things that you would want to like leave behind in similar ways. And so I was wondering whether or not like the idea of kind of like you, to some extent you might want to escape yourself as well. And that like traveling away from whatever is holding you down, your obligations to other people is as much kind of like escaping your obligations to a version of you. Yeah. Yeah. Touche, Ian. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that, like, yeah, in that, like, you know, if 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 pointing the flashlight and walking is like, is like mustering the courage to like escape in into like an uncertain, like unsafe potentially place that is just all you know is that it's different than what you have right now you know like like yeah like i feel like it's also like like a, a place where you're illegible mm-hmm. <laughs> um and there's with that comes like there's a there's something liberatory and also something you know harrowing <laughs> musically i don't I, since i brought up the harp i feel like now i need to talk about the harp <laughs> <laughs> you have you have two harps is that right um i currently have one harp aha uh-huh. okay how did you it this felt like when i when i heard that you had picked up a harp it felt like very audacious of you <laughs> um, but then it shows up on the record and it's like well yeah felix needed a harp <laughs> it was absolutely audacious <laughs> it, it, it's probably one of like the most insane things that i've done to buy this harp and you know it was like when did i buy this 2018 maybe I, w- I had just come off of a tour a florist tour where we had done particularly well so I like ended this tour with all this money and I was just like well maybe I do it <laughs> and and I did it <laughs> now, so you'd been harboring harp thoughts for a while before that yeah I'd been covetous for several years actually to the point of like you know daily bring you know craigslist like deal hunting constantly but also with the, you know the understanding that like this is not for me they're expensive <laughs> they're like mm. and i ended up finding one on craigslist that was like you know not as expensive as as they can be yeah i don't know it it found its way onto the record just because I like when I got it, I became completely obsessed with it. And I was like doing all my writing on it. And like all my like music practicing time was just harp time. It felt like it, because it was such an insane thing to buy. I was like, I was like, you cannot have a harp and be bad at it. Like, that is <laughs> unacceptable. Like, totally. <laughs> you have to you have to train. <laughs> Were you taking lessons or were you self-taught? Like, how did you approach getting good at the harp? Mostly I was self-taught. I ran into some some technical issues where I was 
it, it was sort of my impulse to pl- to pluck it the way I uh, pluck guitar strings, which is a little too percussive. Um, and I ended up uh, take I took two lessons, I believe, with a a woman named Marilou Donovan who who plays harp in a, a couple of bands in New York. Actually, she taught me some you know some classical technique that really helped me a lot. How to play more more like a baby cherub than a idiot from a punk band who bought a harp, <laughs> uh, and yeah, that that really helped me. Like, you know, especially for recording to make it sound less plucky and more full. When it comes to like writing on the harp, did you find that you were kind of like it was pushing you to write differently in any way? Like, how how did using this like as like a new instrument affect your songwriting? It definitely helped me write in. A, in a different way, like because you know, the the harp music that I'm most familiar with is Joanna Newsom, uh, and outside of Joanna Newsom's music, it's just like you know instrumental like Renaissance fair shit, <laughs> like uh, and you know none of that like that music has very very little in common with the kinds of like straight straightforward like songs that I'm, I'm that I, I typically write. Uh, mm-hmm. Or would listen to, so it it brought out some like different rhythmic possibilities for me. Where like like Joanna Newsom really likes the uh, uh, the reggaeton, like the undergirded reggaeton beat. Thing. Yes, like not that the drums are necessarily doing that, but like the the rhythm of the harp sort of like begs for that in this way. Maybe you know the exact term for what I'm talking mm. about. But. You're talking about the doom da doom da rhythm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's actually like not exclusive to reggaeton, from my understanding. Um, I I don't recall off the top of my head the name for the rhythm itself, but it kind of shows up across like a whole lot of uh, you know West Indian uh, music. It's also like weirdly in a lot of like Middle Eastern and Mediterranean music. Yeah. Um, and there's kind of this interesting, like, I think there's like a trade connection between the two of them. So that probably is a, a like, as well as colonialism, obviously. Um, and that I think is why the idea kind of like you can hear it both in like Israeli bands and also in Puerto Rico, which is just like fascinating to me. That is really interesting. Yeah. Well, whatever, however, it ended up in Joanna Newsom's toolbox. It ended up in my toolbox. Um, <laughs> I know that she like she's done. She's mentioned like being really into like the three against four polyrhythm, mm. which I think suggests that rhythm, especially if you kind of like cut it off at the end and make it a bit less like annoyingly proggy and like try and fit it into like a more uh, conventional measure. That sort of is the resulting loop. Sure. Okay. That I don't know what you're talking about exactly, but I <laughs> I, I, I know that you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm also kind of spitballing here, so I might be. Someone will definitely correct me as to why Joanna Newsom also does this rhythm. But <laughs> in either case, it, it started showing up in your in your harp technique as well. Yeah. Well. So like like the song that like most heavily features the harp on the record is that Family Still, which has a sort of like like there are no. I think there are no drums. There's just like some tambourine later, but like there, there are no, uh, there's no like typical drum set on the song. But if there was one, I'm sure you can imagine how the the reggaeton beat might fit under that harp line. 
Sorry, that's like not a thing to do during podcasts to like hum one's own (laughs) (laughs) harp line. But yeah, like that felt like sort of like that was like derived from like how I understood the harp, like what I understood the, the instrument to be capable of. I don't know. It's it's like totally like just a different. Sorry, I keep glancing over at it, um, <laughs> as if it'll tell you something about itself. <laughs> yeah, it is basically a person in the room. It's like a a bit taller than I am. Like, you know, in some ways it feels like the guitar. Like, and that's like the way that I want to play it. Um, but also, like, all of the notes like can like resonate. You know, you can resonate on like you know forty strings at the same time, whereas mm. on the guitar you have six. You know, it's different from the piano too, or just in in terms of like it actually being like a plucked string rather than a a, a smacked one. string. Yeah. Smacked, I believe, is the is the sure. correct term. I defer to your <laughs> expertise. In but but it also like you know like it plays like a. Like all, like you know, the white notes of a piano when when the harp's in its neutral uh, setting. Yeah, it's sort of like a hybrid of these two things, and and yeah, it just it playing it forced me to like rewire my songwriting brain. So when did you start writing for this record? Oh, I mean, well, the first song I wrote for it was really right after the last record. Um, Run Around the School was the first song, yeah, that I, that I actually finished writing. I think I wrote that in, like, January 2017, mm-hmm. so just a couple months after uh, after going by. But that, that, for me, is, like, that's a small... It takes me a long time to write a song, so when I say, like, oh, I started writing shortly after, like, six months to me, it's like, whoa, you got a new <laughs> song already? Like... <laughs> It, I, I know this is probably like a difficult question to nail down, but is it that you like start a variety of songs and they're just not, they never, they, it takes like a long time for them to reach a place where you feel like they're actually like finished or is it a sense of like not actually even having the idea until time has elapsed? There are so many stages of beginning a song of like of of like unfinishedness that a song can exist in. Like it can just be a line that I've like mm. I'm like I know this line is gonna be a song, but it's I just haven't fleshed out the rest. There are some other ones where it's like I've finished the whole song, but like I have no idea how I'm gonna record this. Like how it's gonna like is this gonna remain a guitar song or is it gonna turn into like a piano song or like maybe it'll morph into like you know a harp song or something but yeah so I, I would say like the most common way for this to go is like is sort of like sort of similar to what you said where I'm like I have no idea what the next song is going to be and then you know like I have nothing and then after a couple of days of like really heavily like going at something a song skeleton will appear and so that was like a process that you were doing like on an individual basis or what, when did you start to realize like, oh, this is like the shape of the album that I'm working towards. And when did it start to feel like you were writing a record rather than writing a few songs here and there? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I wish that, see, this makes me wish that I documented this process a little bit better or even like just had like incomplete project files or something that I could mm-hmm. like older versions that I could go back to. But 
don't know. It there were a couple songs, like the first couple songs that I recorded for this record didn't end up on it, and I felt like they were still they were like going by songs. They just like didn't end up like fitting like you know the narrative like this story I was trying to tell. So I don't know when it came together as like probably when I kicked those songs out of the record is when I started to realize what was happening. Maybe five or six songs in mm-hmm. and then the remaining songs I was like okay this is my narrative this is the structure of what's going on like I need to write these songs. It's interesting how it happens that way. I feel like the, like the first couple songs on a record are just like totally mapless. They're just like I'm writing about what I'm experiencing and what I'm feeling. And then like the second half of the record, not like in the chronology that it appears on the record, but in the chronology of my writing process, it's about like through lines and like, you know, connecting thoughts. Mm -hmm. I I suppose like the thing that makes it really thrilling is like, I, I would imagine that it would be difficult for a listener to be able to determine one from the other you know like which were the songs that were felt in the moment or at least the goal should be like you're not writing a song that sounds like it's just like let's move a to b you know totally yeah and i you know like if that like obviously like the songs that they have more going on then they're not just like how do i make these other songs make sense i need to write these words like it's like the next song that i write has to make sense here I'm guided by like, you know, the, the a guiding principle for these songs is that like they will fit the record, and mostly that, that I think that's an issue of like of like efficiency, where it's like, well, I don't want to write another song that I'm cutting from this record. <laughs> I'm trying to like make sense of this narrative like for myself and for for other people. <laughs> sure. Yeah. W- was there like a a song or a moment where you? realized what the shape of the record needed to be was there like a turning point tune it may have been from the roof beams might have been the one where i was like okay like this song is like i've i always knew that that song was going to be like like hold like some important narrative place on the record there was a time where i was like that's going to be the first track I'm so glad I didn't do that because that's actually a terrible idea and like would have been a completely different record. But, you know, it, it's in the penultimate track spot, which is like it's the other first track. In terms of like importance, you mean? Yeah, to me, it's like like because Walking with the Moon, which is the final track, is like that's that was one of the last ones that I wrote. And that really felt like answered and posed some questions that I didn't want to like stuff into from the roof beams because from the roof beams was so like it felt so concise already and I was like I have these thoughts and I don't know I guess I all all that is to say that like from the roof beams felt like it was the closest thing to like telling the story of the record in one song that's a perfect like final or like penultimate thing because it's like summing up the record before you can leave it on a note that still allows it like thought to continue, you know, like the climax is like the, the second to last moment. So that's actually where kind of the story quote unquote sometimes ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get what you mean. It does feel like sort of a conclusive statement that starts with the, uh, the fears or the, um, the uncertainty that you have that you were describing and then 
gradually gains the the freedom and the the sense of being able to take that next step that you also were, were saying so you're totally right like that does like sum up the whole record it's like a conclusive statement yeah and also another thing about it is it was actually something i struggled with with the song and also about its placement for a long time was i was like this song is too conclusive i think like there's if i hadn't included the final track on the record walking with the moon someone may listen to this record and feel that it ends with a sort of like revelation that like love is all you need like i've decided that i'm going to like stay with you no matter how like difficult at, at no matter the cost um and walking with the moon is this sort of like stumbling drunk potentially like suicidal song at the end of the record that's like like that doesn't necessarily end well you can reach the cathartic point but then life still does continue and with that comes some degree of uncertainty again yeah exactly um so that was the only way that 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 song like like i knew like that song like was like the record in like miniature form but i needed it needed this this it needed to be exactly where it was and followed by walking with the moon or else it would have been it would have ruined everything <laughs> i feel you uh, there's one other like tiny bit of like lyricism and choice in terms of song placement that i want to zoom in on which is family still which is kind of like at the pivot point of the momentum of the album it's like the like the first track of side b i guess would be the the way to think of it which is also kind of like a, a second opening song there's the the verse about that opens with like did you know that most people die within a couple of miles like that section like really shocked me out of the experience of listening to the song because it felt like such a change in narrative voice <laughs> and like it was almost like reaching out beyond the subject of the song like directly to impart like an idea to the listener that almost like hovers outside of the album in some way you know what i mean yeah i do that's interesting <laughs> it is a sort of like i mean it's a bit of like it's a horrifying thing to hear and it feels like you know like like the song like the song is, has like these different ways of addressing the person uh that the narrator is addressing most of them are sort of indirect it's like there's like there's like you you know like singing to you like my dad listens to you but to like pose a question like that i think in a song is something that's the most striking because it's like it's conversational in this way that's like like impossible in the medium like mm -hmm. uh, and i think the, the way that i delivered that i think i can understand your you being disconcerted there <laughs> well it's also like two very kind of jarring questions right next to each other you know because I'll, <laughs> I'll just read the whole thing it's like did you know that most people die within a couple of miles of the place they spend their whole lives and then you immediately follow that up with what can be said of desire when every longing instilled in my heart was instilled in such a violent world like those two ideas do not necessarily happen one from the other in an essay way it's and that's kind of what makes it like a good song is because you've got these two ideas that have to sit next to each other in the listener's mind like so the first question is almost like disarming and disconcerting and then the second one feels like the actual like now that i've prepared you to 
<laughs> think deeply here's a real like stumper you know well it, if i if i may shatter the uh the illusion of the disconnectedness of those thoughts for Please. you um for me like did you know that most people die within a couple of miles of the place that they spent their whole lives is a thought about is essentially like isn't it so sad that we can like stay in these like you know, potentially harmful states of being forever. Like, that we didn't, like, you know, in 60 years we'll be here and we won't have escaped it or we won't have tried to even, like, uh, just because of, like, the inertia of, of our lives. The second thought, though, is, like, how do I qualify the desire to escape that even like you know like what who am i to say that i won't repeat the same like horrible patterns like um, Mm -hmm. that are all i know maybe like if i actually like am to be free of those things right yeah because the interesting thing is in the first the first question you're treating place and self as like a linked concept you can't you're you're t- you're taking the like the fact of like most people die where they've lived and sort of using that to present this idea of like most people die as they are you know and then the second idea is kind of then like a different version of place as self like you can't actually if you take the world as the place and all of the fucked up things in the world you can never escape that because place is as you are yeah. As set up by the previous question. Yeah. That's a much better way of explaining it than I just did. That was, that's great. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have gotten that to that explanation without your first uh, explanation. Because as you can tell, I was kind of like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at those lyrics. But yeah, I think that those kind of questions are, are the sort of ones that can, like, it's a question that will recur in your mind as you listen to the record. Like, what it, what is it actually worth desiring? And is escape its own kind of dark desire or destructive desire? Or could it be like, it's, it's this moment of a really powerful self doubt, which I personally think is like a, a really, really powerful tool in art is to, cause it also calls the, the listener to have self doubt and some like self reflection, which is, you know, if you're able to turn the mirror onto them, that's like super powerful. Yeah. I do. One of the reasons I wanted to ask about when you started writing is because I feel like, this record would be really, really fascinating to hear live with like a full band. And I'd, I would love to hear what that would be like. Were you considering how those two things would relate? Because the, the, the production is so much more ornate and has so much more like synthesizers and uh, VSTs and harp and all of that. How were you planning on bringing this album to life? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, <laughs> is, the, is the answer. Like, And I think this sort of like goes, this is sort of related to what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where like, when I was writing this record, I really wasn't thinking about any of the things that musicians have to think about that are annoying <laughs> in this world. Like, how am I going to tour, which is my job? You know, like, obviously, I would love to perform these songs for people in a way that feels like respectful to the songs themselves but that was an afterthought to the you know the writing and producing of the songs like instead of being like 
you know, like looking at the calendar and being like, okay, after this record, like I'm going to have to get on the road and shove all these instruments in a van. How am I going to put on a good show? I was like, I want to make exactly the album that I want to make. (laughs) And I'm going to figure that out when I have to, essentially. And now that when you have to has been kind of prolonged indefinitely. And I was blessed. (laughs) But I I do actually want to ask, because I've been pretty much closing all of the podcast interviews that I've done, just sort of like reflecting on how this current situation has sort of like impacted the way that you release music and the, the way that people, you know, work to survive under these like really kind of outrageous, unexpected circumstances. How is how has COVID like changed my relationship to music as as job? Yeah, pretty much. That that would be a, a succinct way of putting it. I mean, it's changed in that, you know, I you know, I can't go on tour, obviously. The only money that I can make off of music is through album sales, uh, and streaming, which everyone knows is not any money at all. And, you know, the occasional like mixing jobs and other things I can do from home. So it it has changed a lot. To be honest, I needed a a real break from touring for because of what it was doing to my brain. It it was just not sustainable the amount of time I spent on the road. Uh, so I'm I, while I do miss tour, I don't miss feeling the pressure to be on it all the time. And another thing I'll say is that like so like I'm surviving off of being on unemployment and. When we were getting $600 a week, most money I've ever had in my life, like real taste of, of you know, middle class musician lifestyle right there. Mm-hmm. Um, more money I, than I ever made on tours. <laughs> like, you know, in that way, I don't know. I've had time to like relax, <laughs> honestly. I think if, if, you know, if I were myself, you know, like the self that I've mentioned in earlier in our conversation who was releasing going by and recording that record i think i would be really really upset sitting at home you know not you know, moving forward with this project in some way releasing an album to to no ceremony of a of a tour or a release show or something but those things just mean a little less to me now honestly like the the thing that means more is that like I had an amazing time making this art and now I get to share it. And do you feel like the reception has been good so far? Like how how have you been, how has the experience of sharing it felt for you? Oh, it's been like overwhelmingly good. (laughs) I I was like, I'm shocked (laughs) by how much people like it. Honestly, I'm proud of it. Good. You should be. It's a good record. Thanks. Ian. Um, yeah, I I think you've got every right to be proud of the record, and I'm I'm really happy to see it out in the world and to see people enjoying it in whatever way they choose to. Whether it's like I'm going to feel sad on purpose, or whether they <laughs> just want to hear some cool tunes. Like I think it, it is, it's a good thing to have out in the world. So thank you so much for stopping by and and talking to me about it. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me on your pod. Thank you again for listening, and thank you, Felix, for joining me. You can find Told Slant's music at toldslant.bandcamp.com. 
You can find more episodes of this podcast on soundcloud.com slash lamniforms sounds or on the Apple Podcast app. And speaking of the Apple Podcast app, if you liked this episode, it would be appreciated if you could leave a positive rating or if you could just tell a friend about it. Thank you again for listening. More episodes soon.